Welcome to the Dig Endurance Podcast, where we are all about digging deep and discovering the power of emotional resilience. I'm Aaron, and I'm joined by my brother, Sean. As endurance athletes and business owners, we have learned a thing or two about facing and overcoming adversity. We are here to share inspiring stories from our guests that will help you to find that inner strength when you feel like you are running on empty. Are you ready? Let's dig in. Welcome back to the Dig Endurance Podcast today, everyone. We have a special guest, Annie Parker. Annie, thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Annie. We thanks are pumped. We're pumped to chat. We're going to chat addiction. We are going to chat about um, your situation. We definitely want to hear your story. Um, I'm sure there's going to be tons of questions. And I, I think the best part about today is, you know, seeing a unique situation in the addiction world where we can realize that each individual has a lot of decisions to make and they're impactful, but, but they're yours and they're yours to build on and they're yours to grow with. And, um, I think your story is, it's, it's great. I mean, that's why we wanted to have you on today. So if you could, I mean, give us a little bit of background, you know, born, raised, where you're from, what your family's like in anything you want to share. Um, and then, you know, go ahead and lead us into, what you're doing nowadays and, and let's get let's get chatting. Okay, sure. So I'm Annie Parker. I'm first and foremost a mom of two. I have an older son who's 15 and a younger one who's 12. They are Evan and Wyatt and they are why I'm here doing what I'm doing. In fact, if I did not have them, I probably would not be sitting here today. And we can get into that a little bit more um, yeah. later. But I was born in Texas. Mm. and into a military family and we moved all around. I mean, I lived in Germany. I lived in um, on Okinawa in Japan and then we landed in the Midwest at Scott Air Force Base and this is where we stayed. So um, cool. I'm an educator by day. I teach third grade. It's my 20th year, which makes me feel oh. really old when I say wow. that. Um, wow. Yeah, we live in a small town in Illinois and um, as much as I enjoy my summer break, I am looking forward uh, to getting back into the classroom it's next always week. Always and, like that, kids. <laughs> and into into a routine um, and get started with that. So I think my heart is just always with educating people, and so um, I educate little eight year olds all the way up to you know ninety nine year olds who are struggling with addiction in their family, and so. I tell my story, I talk to people, I support people, I give people a safe space to be vulnerable, and I am hoping that the butterfly effect will be big and that um, my husband, who I lost in 2020 to alcoholism, did not die in vain, that um, I hope that he's here with me in some way, um, helping to just put families in a situation where they can feel not so alone, not so isolated, and that they have decisions to make that their lives can get better. Well, I think yeah. all those things are good things. So <laughs> I hope so. I, yeah. I'm excited to hear this. Yeah. So um, my journey with addiction actually did not start with my husband. It started with my sister who is a struggling uh, substance abuser, alcohol, um, and other drugs that started when I was a teenager. So I found out really quickly that 
addiction is a family disease. When I lost my parents and my sister at the same time, my parents became obsessed with fixing her. And we all know that's not a thing that we can do for each other. So um, fast forward into my 20s and I married a man who I did not know was an alcoholic, but looking back on it now, he was. He was when we got married. Um, and you would think that all the experiences that I had as the sister of an alcoholic and drug addict, I would have seen the red flags, I would have known better, I would have chosen better, and I just didn't see them because it was different. Um, addiction does not look the same on people. No. He was, I guess, what everybody terms as a functioning alcoholic, um, and yeah. I know it's kind of like a term that we sometimes use and some people don't like it, but really he was. I mean... He was present, he was outgoing, the life of the party, happy, a great father. He worked hard until he couldn't anymore. Mm. Um, and we had been through it all together. We were married for 10 years. We went through long-term detox and rehabilitation stints, hospitalizations, seizures, hallucinations, you name it, we experienced it. So um, as his disease progressed, I found myself as the spouse of an alcoholic really struggling. And I was the stereotypical screamy wife that was, why are you doing this to us? If you could get your shit together, um, everything would be fine. And that's just not the truth. Um, he was not the one creating chaos in the home, I was. So um, I realized that I needed to change my life when I found myself standing next to train tracks on my Sunday morning walk and just really having a hard time holding my back from stepping in front of the train. So that week I asked my husband to leave our marital home, unsure of what the plan was. Um, he went to live with his father and I just needed to breathe. So I started Al-Anon at that time I've been in Al-Anon for three years now, even though my husband passed in 2020. Um, and he didn't get better. And um, fast forward through COVID, where I was single parenting, teaching from home, um, his alcoholism got even worse. I filed for divorce and he died during a, an unsupervised detox 45 days later. So, so unsupervised you, in his house, yes. at home. Yes. Okay, okay. So, so I have and a couple I, questions. Sure. Were, were you were you working as an educator during all this time also? Yes, working actually three jobs. I worked as an educator, and then I worked two part time jobs from home that were writing jobs because my husband lost his job and our health insurance, and I had to keep our family in our home. That's a lot. And then <laughs> and then and then you said in 2020. Yeah. So was this was this early when COVID first like set on or had had was this later in 2020 and did COVID did COVID exacerbate or was it part of the you know the challenge that you'd already been going through did that did that add to it um absolutely I mean COVID was awful for so many reasons but even the statistics that I've read I wrote a book and I did a lot of research COVID was awful for substance abuse and Terrible. Yeah. So he was isolated. He did feel alone. I talked to him every day. Um, it's hard when you're divorced because people assume that means you hate each other. You don't talk to each other. You're completely separated. 
Right. Divorce right. was different. It was to save myself and our children. I loved my husband. I still love my husband. I tried really hard to support him without enabling, even when he was no longer in our home. Mm-hmm. Um, but he died on July 2nd, 2020. He, his official death certificate said a heart attack due to pro- prolonged use of alcohol. Um, and so I, when I come on to any podcast or um, if I tell my story, I've talked at Alcathon and women's recovery groups, I, I tell our story as much as possible. Um, I always say, if somebody is detoxing from alcohol, you probably actually need to give them alcohol and then get them to a safe place to detox. Absolutely. Alcohol, alcoholism is the one of the only two detoxes that can kill somebody. They it's so all, dangerous. Yeah. They all feel like super gnarly and you get really sick no matter what you're detoxing from. But a lot of people die during detox from alcohol. I mean, so. I work directly with multiple um, very reputable residential facilities. And every time it's make sure they are not just cutting everything off. Like if it has to be a few, a few drinks, whatever it is, don't even go down there. And, and of course I know that, but it's, I mean, it's crystal clear how dangerous it is, especially with your heart. I mean, it's, yeah, it's scary. Yeah. So I carry a lot of guilt about that because he was not in my home at that time. I knew he wasn't feeling well. Um, he, his skin was turning yellow, his eyes, and he was swelling up. I had talked to him every day. I went and sat with him the day before. So I called him and I, I said, how are you doing today? And he's like, I just don't feel well. I called his dad and said, he needs to go to the hospital. I think he's detoxing or something is going on. And his dad didn't take him and I didn't take him. So I've got some guilt about that. But I have to remember that I I couldn't have saved him anyway. I think he was going to die either way. And during COVID, if you guys remember, it was really difficult to get into a hospital. He would have had to walk himself in there, all the things. And then he would have sat there alone and and you know, there's all of this, what ifs, what if I had taken him? Was it my job to take him again? We were no longer married. I talked to his dad. I said, you need to take him. Um, So it's difficult. It's really hard. Um, So I've been blamed a lot for my husband's death. I've been blamed for his alcoholism. Um, And that's where my Instagram handle comes from. I did not kill my husband. (laughs) And, um, and the title of my, so I remember seeing that and I was like, what, what is this? And then I just went down like a five minute rabbit hole and I was like, this is interesting. This is like the same situation, but it's different. I, that, I mean, that was where it started. How how long, how long into the marriage? So 10 years married Mm -hmm. and how, how much of that time would you say then was spent, you know, battling the alcohol addiction i mean from day one i mean or when did that really when did that clock really start where you were like okay this this is something's going on yeah when did that so that started you know when you first get with somebody you go out you have a good time you drink whatever when i was pregnant with my son and i stopped socially drinking and he did not um i started because he was drinking every night and and he wasn't going out he was staying home but mm. my first clue was I was finding vodka bottles in random places around the house. Oh. And I thought, this is not normal. But still, yeah. um, you know, so that was about two years into our marriage. And Couple then, um, you know, 
he had a seizure one day. He kept getting in car accidents. He lost his job. Um, I didn't know why he, when he had his seizure, he got hospitalized. And I, from what I know now, but did not know at the time, he started detoxing and hallucinating really bad. Um, like he was running out of the hospital with his gown on thinking the building was on fire and all sorts of scary things. Um, and not one medical professional told me what was going on. I had to do my own research. And that's how I found out my husband was an alcoholic. So initially, and understandably, we, we've been through our own part of this within our, within our family too. Um, I mean, a lot of frustration. Sounds like, like you were saying, raise voices. Why can't you fix yourself? Why can't you get it together? Um, what, at what point did you realize, I mean, was it on your own or what, did you finally seek some type of help or, you know, where you were like, I need to take a different approach if mm -hmm. we're going to try to like, you know, figure this out. And was there ever, you know, ultimately, obviously, you know, he passed and um, we'll, we'll talk statistics and some things shortly because unfortunately it's not, it's not uncommon where people are battling such things. Um, but did you have some degree of, you know, success? Did you see some progress ever that you guys made as you tried, I don't know, different, you know, um, approaches trying to work through it? I mean, I know eventually you decided that divorce is the way you needed to go, but can you speak to some of the ways that you tried to cope with that and work on that and what, what, you know, what didn't work, what, what did work? I mean, any, any little victories you had along the way, um, or where you felt like you were able to adapt or, you know, make it work? And, and maybe the answer is no, and that's okay. I'm, I'm just kind of curious what that looked like for you. Sure. Yeah. So I, at the moment where I was literally just on a Sunday morning walk, which I took every Sunday morning, um, where I almost jumped in front of a moving train, um, without like, it's not something I planned. I didn't walk out there to, to try to do that, but it just was like the train was coming and I was bawling on my walk because everything was out of control and I felt so angry and scared and isolated and exhausted because I was doing everything on my own and just lost and completely out of control. And I thought, man, that would be nice to not have to feel any of this stuff anymore. So literally I like held myself back from that because I have two children and I knew they needed me if I could get my shit together because I was not my best mom self. And I knew that I had to do something for me and that I could not fix him or change the situation. So I had a therapist at the time and I told her what happened and she said, you need Al-Anon. And I was like, I don't need Al-Anon. I don't have a problem. He has a problem. I have you. And she said, you need both. And I learned very quickly in Al-Anon that we take responsibility for our part in the situation, that we only can control ourselves. And that program is very near and dear to my heart. Um, that program, program helped to save my life. And it has made me a better mother, teacher, partner, friend, human. Um, and I've just been able to release control over everything. So is Al-Anon available to everyone just for, for people listening that may not know what Al-Anon is? Sure. Um, Al-Anon is like a 12-step <laughs> program for family members of alcoholics. We take the same 12 steps as AA. Um, we focus on ourselves and we learn about alcoholism. Um, from our perspective, there's, it's a great place for support. 
a couple things. The first meeting I tried, I hated it. I was like, I am, this is not for me. I'm never going back. My therapist said, try another one. And we just kind of say, try six meetings, even if they're different meetings. And if it doesn't work for you, we will gladly refund you your misery. So um, <laughs> keep trying um, because you will find, find your right group. Um, and I will say, you know, recovery ebbs and flows. When I first was going through this, man, I hit every meeting I could. It was the only place I could go where I felt sane and normal and hopeful. And now as um, I'm three years into this, I still go to weekly meetings most of the time. Um, but I do other things as well. When I first started my recovery, you guys, literally, I was like, I have to drink water and I have to eat food. Like I was not even like drinking water or eating nope. food. I wasn't sleeping. I called my doctor and got put on medication to help me sleep. Yeah. And so you just start with those small things and then it starts to build into this whole recovery process, right? Sure. My husband was not doing that. He pretended to go to therapy. Um, he pretended to go to AA instead of actually going to those things. He would go drinking or he'd go, uh, but wasn't really there or wasn't really putting the effort in. And I always talk about that too when I come on and talk to people because it's scary for somebody to say, alcoholism killed my husband. It is scary for people to hear that. But people can recover if they're willing to put the effort in. My husband was not. And I don't sure. know why he wasn't. I don't know sure. why he wasn't willing. So. Well, there's a couple, there's a couple, I, I appreciate, you know, it's interesting. It takes, it takes a great deal of obviously like vulnerability and courage to throw this kind of a story out there. And, and yeah, some people would view it as taboo. I, I'm Sean and I are in the same vein as you. I think the open and honest discussions are always the most helpful. We've talked about not watering down feedback here on this podcast. I believe that's very important. I believe real true feedback and real true storytelling and, being open and honest is what yields results and change. Um, what I appreciate that you said is, um, you know, as you were getting into Al-Anon, is that you were part of the, you know, of the problem or the struggle. Not, not that necessarily that was going to, you know, fix your, your husband's problem, and ultimately it, it didn't. But, like, I have had, you know, people close to me. So, for example you know, with marital issues and that, you know, they've been fighting on and off or, you know, certain things going on. And all of a sudden, you know, one spouse cheats on the other and then the other spouse is just up in arms. How could you do this to us? It's just instant finger pointing and I'm the victim. You know, he, he cheated on me, but there's no degree of, Hey, maybe, maybe I did play some part in driving my spouse to look for some, you know, look somewhere else. And listen, not that I'm justifying, I'm not advocating that anyone cheat on their spouse. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is it is a partnership. It is a marriage. You know, it's and it does take some degree of self-examination to say, what can I do differently? And I'm not talking just alcoholism. I'm talking in, in various aspects. And I do think that, frankly, a lot of people aren't willing to do what you did. I think in these situations where alcoholism is, is involved, they, they just say, hey, it's plain and simple. He drinks, we have problems. And and that's it. And I'm not the problem here. And I think it, it took a, probably a great deal of humility for you to say, 
hey, even though he's got problems and, and is making something stressful, I have to self-examine and see what I can do to change and, and, and improve and, and make things better. Um, I think that's a huge missing step in, in alcohol battles with couples in particular, where people just look at it black and white. No, he's the alcoholic or she's the alcoholic. There's nothing for me to fix here. It's really just on them. So I think that you highlighting that, mentioning that is, is big because I think a lot of people are not willing to admit at all or even recognize that they're part or have some role to play in what their spouse's you know, uh, challenges may be. So I just think that that's you know, a big thing to highlight for, for some people. And it takes a great deal of humility to do what you did there. It, it takes a lot of work behind the scenes. And um, I'm curious, <clears throat> when, you're, when you're educating yourself and making all of this progress, even hearing your story, um, I, I cannot emphasize enough to people that are listening the amount of stress and exhaustion and chaos that all is still going on while you're trying to better yourself, while you're trying to look in the mirror, while you're trying to ignore social feedback, family members' feedback. It's nonstop. I, I, I you know, it, it just is. How, how and, and what did you do when you, when you started educating yourself, when you started taking pieces from Al-Anon uh, therapy, stuff like that? I mean, when were you like this this is the path I'm supposed to be walking. I am getting puzzle pieces and putting this together. Like when did that click? Cause you know, I, a lot of people that I've worked with, um, they'll explain that to me and just say, Hey, you know, I'm, I, this is where I'm at. I kind of get this now. Like when a challenge comes my way, instead of me operating or thinking a certain way, it, it's almost like a natural thought of, Oh, this is, this is another piece of the puzzle I need to throw together versus like, you know, I don't know how I'm going to handle this. I don't, what did that look like for you? How did you push through, let's just call it noise. And, and it is noise. It's constant, nonstop noise, feedback, opinions. How did you get through that? So originally I, I always talk about how we were in a recovery bubble. My kids and I, it was, and, and COVID actually helped me do that because I could easily say no to anybody who wanted my time and energy. Um, so we're staying home. Um, yep. <laughs> so it, works. it, it didn't click for me right away because like when you're in the moment of it and you're in the trenches and you're like, gosh, I'm putting, I'm so tired and I'm putting all this work in and like, and he's still up at night throwing up with his anxiety and he's still so angry and I can't get him to go to school and I'm like overwhelmed. But then eventually, something happens and you think, whoa, I handled that well. I didn't scream. I didn't yell. He didn't throw up last night. My son, yeah, my son, you know, has super high anxiety. He goes to therapy, um, NET, all these things. And I see progress in them and the progress that I see in my kids and how I can calmly handle situations now. That's great that you do that. That's, That's great. That's my progress monitor. You know, it doesn't, it's not in the everyday moments. It's when you look back and you think, okay, 
we're doing much better now. And we still work hard. I mean, between me going to Al-Anon in therapy, the kids both in therapy, my partner in therapy and Al-Anon, and uh, NET, which is at the chiropractor, and 504 meetings at school. Man, we are in recovery for five to eight hours a week. And this is three years later. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot, um, but um, it's what we need. It's working. It won't always be this way. Uh, my kids are preteen and teenage years, so I only have a few more years where I do have some parenting control, and I just want to give them the best opportunity possible to have health, healthy coping skills. I like how she said some parenting control. Some we, never parenting have, control. we never have more <laughs> than like, some. I have to go because, you know, <laughs> we have to go. <laughs> We got nine kids between us, so we're yeah. some okay. parenting control is we the right totally, way. It's the right totally way to say it. So let me ask you this: Did you ever struggle with? I know for you, it's like an individual choice. Like you know, the work needs to happen. Was it a struggle to put your kids in therapy? Was it a challenge at all? Like, what was your thought on that? Because I've I've come across both sides of that coin. Yes, where it's um, like my kids, they're my kids. They don't need and where it. they I'll go, and my they, kids don't need it. Yeah, were they resistant at all to the idea either? Nope. It's never been difficult for me, and I started wow. them young enough to where they, it's always been a part of their life. They don't, I get a lot of that. How do you get your teenagers to go? Oh, well, he's been going already for six or seven years. He, it's part of his life. My 15-year-old sometimes goes to Al-Anon with me. We prioritize our recovery. We communicate with each other. We talk to each other. Just the other night, I had an, ex, like, I exploded because our dog peed in the teenager's bed right before we were going to sleep and we had an early morning with surgery. So I was like stomping around and yelling and I had to turn around the next morning and make amends to my kids. Like, I am so sorry. <laughs> it was a hot mess last night. You know, we talk about these things and we don't expect perfection, but it takes a lot of work. Um, a lot. A lot, yes. Um, <laughs> a lot. What has been difficult for me, though, is my youngest son has really high anxiety talking about putting him on medication. That has been uh -huh. difficult for me. So I, I understand that. Like, I'm an educator by day. I know it's hard to hear that something is wrong with your child. But if we ignore that, we can't help them. And statistics tell me that my kids need help. They need help now. And they're going to need help as adults. But once they're adults... That help is on them. It's not on me. I mean, that's kind of why I was asking what you just said. You're, you know, there's something wrong with my child. It's like I've ran into so many situations where I'm like, well, listen, like the medication thing. That's a great example. You don't have to jump right in. You can put in some work before. You can, you can, you can build out a path, right? And and take steps to get to the point where maybe it's a need. You never know. But um, a lot of uh, parents, me included um, struggle with that. That's, you know, providing help one way or another. I, <clears throat> therapy is so stigmatized. I, people may disagree with this. It is so stigmatized in my eyes. Absolutely. It is, uh, you know, I, I go to therapy every week, period. And I probably will forever. I don't even know. And then I have a separate therapy session just for having to work with my brother every day. <laughs> you know? Just kidding. So, um, you know what? Some of my therapy sessions are, they're just chats and they're great. And I process a few things or whatever, you know, Aaron here holds meetings all the time. Sometimes the meetings are like, Oh, we repeated that last week, but, but we all learned something and we moved on and, and things are organized and they flow. Well, it's like a work meeting. 
it's, you know, I go in, things flow, I chat. Um, and it's and okay for it to be a check-in. It, Sometimes totally. therapy just needs to be a check-in and some accountability. It's, That's what it's it fantastic. Needs to be. I mean, it's like, if it's no different than going to the gym, it really is. I, I can't emphasize that. It's just enough. knowing that you have somebody in your corner. You know, I, you I always say if your child or children are growing up in a home where there's active alcoholism, active addiction, active mental health, they're living in childhood trauma, period. Totally. Yep. And it's hard for me to say my kids grew up in childhood trauma. I'm an educator. I have a master's degree. My husband had a master's degree. We have a beautiful home. We, It's so stigmatized. It doesn't care who you are or... Well. What you it, 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 this is well. This is where I have to I have to interject, and I because I have to force this conversation um, as part of this this uh, podcast today, um, because your situation applies very much to it, and that is, this was the pandemic before the pandemic. Mental health is the real pandemic. Yes, I'm sorry. I, I'm gonna be frank. COVID. I have so much to say about COVID and we've only got a few minutes, but there are so many Parker families that already faced mental and behavioral health challenges as part of this already ongoing pandemic that we faced throughout the world. Yeah. And when we unreasonably and, and stupidly knee jerk reactioned to COVID the way we did, all in the name of saving lives, we actually ironically exacerbated so many other existing problems. Us three who live and breathe behavioral mental health every day and deal with these things, not only personally, but also professionally, I'm, even as an educator, I'm sure you navigate into mental and behavioral health waters quite often. I know because we collaborate with them all the time the news media and all these other people don't, all the focus was was on the numbers of cases and oh my gosh, are we, are we at least bringing those down and no one else is getting sick and all the, all the numbers you see are deaths on hospital beds from COVID itself. No one wanted to look at the, the, the depression uh, cases that went up during that time. No one wanted to look at the suicides that went up during that time. No one wanted to look at the number of deaths from alcoholism that went up during that time. No one wanted to look at the number of cases of abuse that went up during that time. Oh, and I could go on and on and on. Children it's, not being able to eat because they weren't it, going to school, all of it. It's it's sick. It really is. Yeah. And yep. and it's behind us now. I mean, there's no there's no doing a do-over, but make no mistake, the way that we handled that whole situation as as people, maybe we did some good. Maybe. I don't even know on the COVID front with doing the whole you know, tracing and, and trying to social distance. I I still would argue that a lot of that didn't really work or matter. But one thing for sure we did that the true pandemic that already existed before COVID, we made it worse. Yeah. And I'm not going to sit here and say that your husband, you know what, maybe, maybe he did, you know, get better if not for COVID, but maybe not. Maybe he still in the end might have passed. But you know what? Like, I am confident that there are many cases where people might have and could have been better where COVID was just the final nail in the coffin because it exacerbated, it, it removed fam, familial contact, it removed, you know, socializing, it removed normal interaction, it removed people's outlets for work, for recreation, it removed so many things. 
and 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 hey, cool, we saved a couple COVID deaths, but but Annie, what does that real number look like of, of all these other deaths that we might have caused on the mental health front due to COVID? We'll never know. We'll never know. I mean, and that right. bo- that bothers me, our, as you can tell. Our, that that one matters. To we me. have a, a an adolescent program here. A lot of the cases were non-existent before. Um, it's just it's sad. It's sad mm-hmm. to see. Yeah. We do our best. We do our you best. Know, I, I had down during COVID though was AA and Al Anon, man, they pulled through. They were yeah. continuing their they meetings. Were. They were going through oh. up, you know, Zoom meetings like immediately. We did not miss a week. Um, you know, and so there's a lot to be said about that because the people that know how much it matters to have those meetings and to have community and have support and then not be isolated with our problems, they showed up. Well, and same, same for us. I mean, we, you know, uh, we live in California, so I don't think I need to say anything else about how COVID was handled here. Um, but, um, you know, we, we do applied behavior analysis and, and mental health, you know, services. We closing was never an option. We never even discussed that, that, that was never an option on the table. Um, you know, where we had tons of behavioral, uh, health providers around us that closed their doors, started offering versions of teletherapy. I don't know if you know anything about ABA. I'm actually, you probably do because you probably have paraprofessionals in your classroom that maybe you've seen or worked with. If you're working with kids with autism or ADHD, teletherapy for five (laughs) minutes. Yeah. Good luck. Good luck with that. (laughs) Uh, it it doesn't, it's not effective. Um, it's not going to do the job. Um, Maybe some supervision can be done, but the, but ultimately the one-to-one, there's no way. And, and we had parents literally in tears who were just so scared we were going to close. I mean, imagine already having to have your childcare situation and you're you know, going to work or whatever and that being taken away. But imagine you've got one or two or two or three kids in ABA therapy. That's your childcare and this is, this is your, your autistic child or your child with behavioral issues and this is the help they get. And imagine that's taken away and all of a sudden you have nowhere to take them, but also you now have to care for them and you're not, you're not skilled or trained into how to handle your, you know, your, your autistic child or your, your child with ADHD. And that's, it's, it's hard. It's a lot. And so our families were so grateful, you know, that we were able to just stay open and keep figuring it out. But unfortunately, so that's great. You were able to keep going to your meetings, you know, in our situation, we were able to keep providing services, but, Unfortunately, I think a lot of a lot of uh, other organizations out there didn't arrive at that same conclusion, and and a lot of people's services discontinued or or were on hold during that time. But um, I'm glad to hear that yours weren't. <laughs> I I have um, I have kind of a, a final question where I want some either feedback or some advice for people that are listening. Um, I'm familiar with trauma that is caused or that the children experience within this situation that you're describing. I've been the cause of it myself. Um, on my side, ego kicks in. You don't want to hear that you are responsible for any type of, any type of damage to your own children, your biological children. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't work through it. It doesn't mean that work can't be done and it's work to be on work. I mean, talk about for me personally, you know, the ego comes out to play, right? It's um, it's a lot of work. That's all I'm going to say. In your situation, we know you love your husband. We know you still love him and that you represent him 
in nothing but support and to serve others, to help others learn how they can make decisions and develop paths for themselves. How, how do you think others can learn or even find resources, whether their partner is still living with them or whether they're divorced, but they want to find some sort of way to create a path that works for the children to get through the trauma, um, no matter what path they're on or no matter what they're going through, because I think that is a very, a very underplayed card. I think that that was a lot of the work I had to put in and, and um, cause you can put in individual work. People can go to therapy, this, that, and the children kind of just, you know, they start to trust again and build up. But how important is that trauma portion for the children? Yeah, for me, that's everything. Um, I saw my children suffering because I didn't care about myself. I, I Whatever, you know. But when you see your children suffering, you think, oh, my gosh, I have to do something. And I'm the safe parent. I'm the healthy parent. I'm the one that has to do it. I have to make all the decisions, the hard ones included. Um, if I had advice for people, it, I have a couple things. One, educate yourself. Learn about addiction and stop just assuming you know about it and actually find facts and learn about it. What is happening to your spouse? What is happening to you and your children? Um, another thing I would say is think of what you can control. What is within my control? I cannot stop him from um, drinking and driving, but I can stop him from putting my kids in the car when he does that. Um, they're, the hardest part for me, I'm, I'm a controller. I like to control things because, you know, like if you do it my way, it's the right way. I'm that type of person. And I've had to really let that go because that just keeps me sick. It just keeps me angry at everybody for not doing the things the way that I want them to do it. And now that I know that I can't tell him five million times, do not drink and drive. It's dangerous. He's going to do that if he wants to. But what did I have within my control? I could have him not drive the kids around anymore. And yeah, that sucks for me because now I'm going to this soccer practice over here and this soccer practice over here and calling and asking people for help. But that's just what it is. Um, for our situation specifically, the, the one thing that I needed to control that a lot of people struggle with is I needed him to be removed from my home. I needed space and I didn't know what that meant. I did not know if that meant that's what he needs to get better. And then we can come back together and try this again. But I knew that I needed that space. I needed to work on myself. I needed to parent our children differently. And since I was the healthy parent, I needed to be the one to make those decisions. Um, I also like to talk about blame. A lot of blamers and shamers come out. His family came at me hard. Uh, you divorced him. Uh, you gave up on him when he needed you the most. Um, you didn't tell me how bad it was. I could have fixed it. I could have helped all the things. And I've had to put up big, big boundaries and not let that take me down because I have one goal, one goal. And that is for serenity for my family. And I guess two goals, giving them the coping skills that they need because they've grown up in trauma. They have a dead father and they're going to be genetically adults who might be prone to alcoholism themselves. So here I am talking about that. And that. that's why my handle is I did not kill my husband because of all that's the great. blamers and shamers. <laughs> so. Well, and, and to the blamers and shamers and naysayers, 
what do you say to them when they, you know, for credit critiquing your transparency or your, or your being candid about your journey? What is your, what is your rebuttal to that? Um, my rebuttal is deleting their comments and blocking them because I don't, <laughs> yeah, I don't go. have time or energy really to try no to, need. And you know, like if they, if you, if you haven't experienced it, you don't understand it and you can't, and that's fine, but you also shouldn't be commenting on it. I cannot tell you, you guys, I have gone viral <laughs> two times this summer. I went from 5,000 followers to 20,000 followers in the course of the month, <laughs> and I have heard it all. I am a murderer. I did kill my husband. I'm the biggest narcissist. I gave up on him. I should, I pulled the trigger. I mean, all the things. And still I would go back and make the same decision that I made because yeah. really what I would want to tell people if they would listen, those naysayers wouldn't listen is that if he I, was agree, enough, I agree with that, <laughs> if he was sick enough to die 45 days after our divorce, he was going to die anyway. And maybe I saved him from dying in our home in front of our children or in front of me. And that would have been so much worse than the way that it happened. I could not save my husband. I wish I could have. I would have done anything to do so, but I had to save myself and I had to save our children. And I'm telling you guys, I know that he's proud of me. He's proud of our kids. He knows that I did the right thing. And he's standing with me and in solidarity and in support. And no matter what anybody says to me, they can't, can't take that from I, me. I think anyone who talks with you can see that you're comfortable and forthright in taking your own accountability in the situation. I don't think you hide from that at all. Yeah. Um, and I think that you're comfortable acknowledging. I, I mean, I don't think I certainly don't sit here and listen to you and think, man, She's just bagging on her husband. It's just like, hey, here's the circumstances. He's made some mistakes. There's mistakes I made. Here's our family situation. Here's what we tried. I mean, I myself was on the train tracks. I mean, there's a lot you shared here. I mean, that pertains to a lot of, again, vulnerability, a lot of, a lot of difficult things that you as a family were going through. And um, I agree with what you said. I think that ultimately naysayers, unfortunately, this is how we are as people, but Sean and I have to talk about this before. They don't want to hear what you have to say. Naysayers really just are that for most of their lives. They're naysayers. That's, that's what they do. They say nay all the time. Um, but the only thing in my experience, and I, and I truly believe that yields real results, is actual transparency People who want to sugarcoat or be shielded from it do not want to make the hard changes to be better. And they want to try to shield or, or, or stop those difficult conversations because it ultimately holds them accountable to something different. Um, and most people don't want that. But we shouldn't let what most people want, which is wrong, stop the few of us from having the hard conversations that want to have a change, like what you've said, this is for your kids. So are the, are the convert, the hard, the are the hard conversations not worth having? So your, your two boys can have a, a safe, secure, and hopefully different future. Uh, I think so. My, my answer is yes. I mean, I'd say that for my own kids and you know what, if anyone else's answer is no to that, then I'm with you. 
uh, bye. <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know? I only have so much energy. You know, I am a, a mom. I am a teacher. I'm trying to support people online. I've got a lot going on. We play sports. We are in band. We're doing all the things. And it's yep. like, I only have so much energy, but my energy is going to go towards people that really need my help and support and to my children and anybody else is you're a waste of my time delete block and because I don't want anybody else to be like reading their nasty comments thinking oh maybe I am gonna kill my husband if I ask him to leave like I don't need that that's not what my page is for I always like think if you're not here for education or support or solidarity scroll on because I don't how many people follow me uh, Instagram does not pay me uh, people are there all the time you're making money on her husband's death I'm like how like I work three jobs what are you talking about I would, like, I would like to know where the money's going please I mean it's not it's not like you're selling shirts that say I did not kill my husband I mean but yeah right. <laughs> so well, nobody that's would never <laughs> that's never gonna change I mean that's that's why we brought you on today is I, I think your perspective and the way you communicate it is beyond what people need to hear um it applies across the board no matter what the results are or the factors before making decisions it's educate yourself and figure out that it's your puzzle to put together there's no meaningful change without the hard conversations without yep. the full transparency so kudos to you for big time. for doing it i appreciate it yeah thanks appreciate for you coming, coming on, on today yeah, yeah yeah thanks annie thanks for having me thanks nice to meet you guys hey nice to meet you annie you thanks too. for coming on and We'll, um, I think we'll have some tags and stuff. So feel free to share on if you, if you so choose. And, um, you know, maybe down the road too. follow we, up. We, yeah. We'll follow yeah, up. I think I feel like this, you know, if you ever want to come on again, we, uh, you know, we always are open to bring people back on in the future too. So we'll just, we can stay in sure. You guys are the most professional podcast I've ever been on, like with your microphones oh. and your background. Like oh. I've done a few and they've been really fun, but. I can tell you guys you are passionate Jake? about what we have. We have a guy that does it for this us. Jake, he produces he them for us. Sets, sets it up for us. And yeah, yeah I wish and, I could um, take the credit for setting up the mics and making it all professional. But it Jake, not Jake be runs it for us. Tag you in social media, uh, <laughs> stories and stuff like that. So okay. Sure. Thanks. Yeah, so I don't Annie, even know what social media is. So I guess when you tag me, I'll find out, right? For sure. <laughs> well, enjoy, enjoy the rest of your summer. Good luck with school starting again, and then um, look for some stuff here to drop in the yeah. coming weeks. Okay. Thank you so Thank much, you Annie. Appreciate it. Thanks, Annie. Bye. Bye. Have a good one.